You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and I have a very special guest for you today, Dr. Shao Mengi. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you give our listeners a little background? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in central Pennsylvania. I was born in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, where they make uh, some chocolates. Um, I was born to parents who'd immigrated about three years before from northern India. So growing up in Hershey, what was your dream as a child? You know, I came from uh, a family of doctors. Uh, my mom's a physician and my uh, paternal grandfather's a physician uh, in India. And so that was certainly something that we talked about um, and that I saw growing up in a smaller community, saw role modeled. Um, I had people that I went to school with and my mom was our pediatrician. We'd go out to the mall and there'd be kids that my mom took care of. So I always had a very positive um, impression. And back then, you know, she used to, when I was very little, be able to take me on rounds. So when I was probably younger than four, I would be able to go when she did her new baby checkups on the weekend and stuff. I used to get to go and peek at the babies. So you're born in a healing, in a healing family. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> they've always been, they've always uh, talked a lot about helping others. And that that's really how my parents, you know, when they asked me about my work now, like, who did you help? What have you done? You know, are you being good to people? Are you doing everything you can for people? Then was that the motivation for you to move into the medical field? Yeah, I think I think I think so. And I think also having, you know, my mom as a female role model, letting me know without ever saying it that you can, you know, have a happy family and, and be a doctor and, and balance these things. So that wasn't, you know, it was never a question. That's what I had seen role model from day one. So it wasn't so I wasn't worried as a woman uh, going into medicine. So your work on current best practices for sexual and gender minorities in hospice and palliative care, I find it to be really uh, groundbreaking. What was the motivation uh, for that research? Well, there's a few things. I think that, you know, I'm myself part of uh, LGBTQ community. And so um, I had friends and community and people that I knew who were going through uh, cancer or end of life experiences, and you hear about people not having good a good experience, something where their long term partner is not allowed in the room, you may have previously rejected the patients. So certainly, I had heard those stories, and as a doctor, didn't want to you know. There's there's sometimes a disconnect between what you see in the community and what the literature shows. So I knew that that story was untold. Um, but what I remember is that when I was in intern. So in the very beginning of my internal medicine training, I was in Bronx, New York, at Montefiore. And I had a patient where this sort of like my general worry and my general sense of responsibility of becoming a doctor and wanting to help people kind of came together. So I had a patient who, a uh, Black patient, HIV positive, a bad uh, HIV, was also trans, a uh, trans woman. Um, on hormones and had been admitted um, 
and was end of life from approaching end of life for, for H, from HIV related complications that were not reversible. And when it came time to, to do disposition, there was like an HIV positive focused nursing home, like places the person could go. And they said that because they had been there before, that they were harassed a lot and it wasn't a welcoming space for them. Mm. And had, because of being out, um, had been rejected by a lot of family. And so we were able finally to connect with a niece who came in and said, I'll take you home, but I'm not going to, you know, but I am not going to call you by your current name, which was a female name. Mm. You have to go back to your original name. Mm. And there was something that hurt that person's dignity and that I felt very bad about. And just on a very fundamental level, like if I had a patient who went through a bad divorce and they went out back to their, you know, name before they were married, and I insisted on calling them, you know, Mrs. Jones, and they were no longer Mrs. Jones, mm. what kind of rapport would I have with that patient? How could, how am I respecting their dignity? How am I even making basic moves? And I think that the concept is much deeper when people are rejected and not acknowledged throughout society, not safe in a lot of settings. It's, it becomes much deeper. But just even that sort of fundamental disconnect of this person having to make choices about in order to be safe, in order to connect with family, it had to change certain things, really for me. And then it's actually in the literature at the time made me want to advocate for this work. Wow. I'm sorry to hear of such a terrible experiences like that. And um, I remember 15 years ago, I was a chaplain in Chicago with a hospice in Chicago. And we had this patient and uh, it took a while for him, you know, to let me know that this person that he called as his best friend was actually his lover. And he was afraid. He was afraid initially to let the hospice team know uh, that uh, information, which is vital. Um, it, it's really sad when situations happen like that. So how have you been able to help your colleagues understand this situation better? That's a great question. I think that, you know, as, as you're pointing out, chaplaincy is such an important part of the team and hospice and palliative care teams are very interdisciplinary. Um, and we often, you know, at least in the U.S., are called in not only when people are, you know, at the end of life or no longer choosing curative or, or palliative chemotherapy, for example, but also in situations where there seems to be a lot of high stress and a lot of dysfunction. Um, that's often where in, inpatient palliative care teams are called. And navigating, you know, from the moment that I saw that patient as an intern through the rest of my residency, through a palliative care fellowship, then through a medical oncology fellowship, and to being an attending in my third place. Like, I see it. I see where patients shut down and they don't um, tell somebody that that, that that the person there is their spouse. Mm. I see where uh, somebody who's a spouse is treated like a friend and isn't given information because people make assumptions. I see where people are not are dealing with the fear not only of having a serious illness, but dealing with the fear of, I don't know who this person is, are they going to discriminate against me? And dealing with uh, the, um, for people, I think particularly for young trans people who are dying, kind of dealing with this existential crisis of having unfinished business and not, having been able to fully transition it um, with hormone just surgery, if that's something that they wanted, just brings a level of suffering 
And so what I've done with my colleagues is to try to acknowledge it and work with other researchers to document how big of an issue this is. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to document quite a bit of witnessed discrimination and witnessed uh, bad behavior on hospice and palliative teams uh, experienced by LGBTQ people and their caregivers. And uh, we did a small research here with hospice chaplaincy, a very small sample of research. And we found that um, in, in about 66% of uh, patients with sexual and gender minorities uh, would decline uh, hospice chaplain visits. And that is because of the history of uh, religious hostility towards gender minorities. So how can hospice chaplains bridge that, cap, uh, that gap and bring a sense of reconciliation and, and, and really provide good care in accompanying sexual and gender minorities in end-of-life care? I think that um, part of the work that needs to be done is dealing with your own implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Because as a chaplain in, in, in that hospice, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but you're dealing with people often of all religions, of all yeah. sorts of backgrounds, you're doing a spiritual intake for somebody who may be agnostic, and yet you're providing a service, a, a very important service, a very healing service um, that's an, a, an integral part of the team. And so for somebody to, one, for somebody because they're trans or, or, or gay or lesbian to be perceived by the team to not have any spiritual basis, right? So the assumption that this person would not want to see a chaplain to not offer it is 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 a problem. Mm-hmm. So the chaplain talking to the team, the chaplain taking a spiritual history that once somebody identifies as a sexual and gender minority, which is a term that I'm using just broadly for LGBTQ plus. Um, but if somebody realizes that on the intake form, because a lot of these things now are just an intake sort of increasingly data collected, you know, maybe there's a different way that spiritual history has to be taken to document prior bad experiences or prior experiences of discrimination that makes somebody feel apart from the religion, because that may be someone's unfinished. Yeah. Or there might be a need for spirituality that needs to be integrated, but outside of a model of religion that they felt hurt from. And then I think the chaplaincy can more than anybody on the team, more than physicians, sort of lead these discussions about implicit bias, lead these discussions about our common humanity Mm. and really role model for the nurses and the rest of the team that we're not discriminating, that we're not assuming it's because somebody's LGBTQ, they have no spirituality and they have nobody who loves them and they're very isolated. They may have a, a huge number of people rooting for them, but they just don't feel safe being out in that particular care center. Mm. Uh, uh, those are um, powerful suggestions for hospice chaplains who are listening on methods they can do spiritual assessment. I think it's, it's important to reevaluate the things that we do to continue to provide better care. Now, from your internship uh, until now where you're working, have you noticed any changes and how significant are the changes? Or are we still doing baby steps? I think a lot of things are changing, at least in the U.S. Um, I think that when you look at, you know, census data, for example, when you look at people younger than 30, about 15% of them are identifying as LGBTQ, and they tend to be people who tell their doctors about it. 
Um, and so that's a big change in demographics that we're all going to need to address. I think that anybody who, who, who's spoken to somebody who's younger than 15 or 16 realizes that they're fluid about their gender descriptions and don't think it's as important um, when you get to know somebody that that's not the most important variable in, in, in getting to know them or, or talk about them. And that's interesting. And I don't know that we're ready for that. I think on a government level in the U.S. with the current administration, you know, there's a move to change passports to like gender X. And how interesting is that? At, if it's on your passport, right, if it's on your documentation, when you go to the hospital, when you're doing an intake in the hospice, when you're interacting with the healthcare system, you know, you may very much say, this is my gender and your system has to learn how to deal with this. And so there's all these sorts of interesting things changing at the same time that you have like, you know, on, you know, more trans people and more gay people and more people of color on TV, but you have this very deep backlash where people are doing more anti-trans, anti-women, anti-this, anti-that legislation. And so we're asking people to be out. We haven't necessarily made it safe. Um, and so this cultural war, I think, really impacts LGBTQ people. So there's a lot of, and I think this is true internationally as well, a lot of, um, you're not doing harm by asking. They, somebody might not disclose to you their, their sexual gender minority status, they might not feel safe. But like, once you take in that information, you should be using it to improve care and you should be using it to, and you should be keeping that person safe, asking them, do you want me to tell other people on the team? You know, how do you want me to use this information? Do you want me to document it? And, and you know, it, it's, things are changing because people want to have the conversation and they feel like if they can go to their local restaurant and sit with their same-sex partner and not be, you know, mistreated, they certainly expect to go to their doctor. And they certainly expect in a hospice to invite people into their home for care when they're very vulnerable and be treated with that same level of respect. Um, and I don't know that we're up to that challenge yet. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Mengi. Um, in your research, you guys wrote amazing, uh, there's a beautiful table about potential barriers to high quality hospice and palliative care that sexual and gender minorities might experience. And the first is heterosexual assumptions of patients' sexual and gender identity. So what kind, what are the potential consequences for that assumption? So I think that if you, I think the most basic one is that we don't have the most trusted, the most loved, the closest people to the patient in the room necessarily. So if you have uh, two women in a room and one of them, and you just assume somebody's a friend or a sister, right? Versus talking to somebody as if they're the spouse and the primary caregiver, you may have a very different conversation. You may allow different information. You might show different respect and different levels of uh, caregiving and 
support. And so that's part of it is that you may make a mistake. The other part of it is that people are walking in and they know discrimination is real and they've experienced discrimination in their life as a sexual and gender minority. So they're also assessing you. Is this a safe place for me? Is this a friendly place for me? And so if you walk in and you don't say something like, who did you bring with you today? Or who else is in the room with us? And give people an opportunity to disclose. Um, you've missed an opportunity to build rapport and let them know that while you're not perfect, you're, you're, you're not, you know, you're, con you're cognizant and not actively discriminating and you may be a place that they can feel comfortable. I like that because sometimes you're right. We forget to give people an opportunity to disclose. And I like that. That's, that's really powerful. And the second you said lack of providing training about caring for sexual and gender minority patients. And, you know, that's even we're in, even in our current studies and really in a lot of the literature that is very, very common. Um, that is a, a big concern and it's highly reported by people. I think the best example of where this is a problem um, and potentially can cause worsening distress and emotional suffering for patients is when, you know, it's common practice to go in when somebody's enrolled in hospice or in an end of life setting to start discontinuing medications, right, with good intentions. And when a trans patient is on hormones that are relevant to their transition to, to their, uh, to the I, a gender identity to which they're transitioning. And if they, you know, you're just like, oh, well, this person doesn't need this medicine anymore. And you stop it without shared decision-making, without a discussion, um, that does, that can do a lot of harm. You know, that might be something that's integral to that person's identity and sense of well-being, and is not causing harm in the setting when our goals are comfort. Um, and to just, assume that it's doing harm or assume that it's not necessary is not correct and that's a lack of knowledge um, and even if your team isn't doing a lot of medical management that you think is you know interacts with hormones or has to do with you know uh, someone's sexual orientation um, the fact is the person has through their life interacted with the healthcare system and had experiences that you know were weird where uh, the wrong name was used or or their child you know or you're going your child breaks their arm and there's two moms and they won't let one of the moms back you know where people make these decisions so it's not like people are coming in clean without prior experiences so the provider team even just you need to just be more cognizant that people have had prior bad experiences and meet them where they're at even training about that for providers is necessary and important and would elevate care. That's powerful. And the third potential barrier is lack of culturally competent caregiver support and bereavement groups. Yeah, I think that that's very true. I think that what we see a lot in LGBTQ people, so there's a, there's a high rate of rejection by family of origin. Hopefully that'll change, you know, as society changes, and that will be something that only people of a certain age experience and younger people aren't experiencing that. But it's real. And so there is something called families of choice, um, which is, you know, your support system, the people that you spend all your holidays with, the people that you're with. This was very important, you know, before uh, 
and in places where people cannot be open and be safe uh, because of the laws of the country um, with their same-sex partner, and also in places where marriage is not legal or recognized. Um, but even beyond that, you have communities, these families of choice that are well beyond just your spouse that support you. And so to provide those people bereavement and support is very important. It is not uncommon for somebody to lose uh, even a spouse that's uh, same sex and have it not be treated by your colleagues, by human resources um, as the same. Uh, not given time to go to funerals, not given time to, um, uh, not, not when you're walking through the office, having people acknowledge that you've gone through a major loss uh, the way we would if, you know, the way we do with our heterosexual colleagues. You know, there have been a lot of stories where families of origin out of nowhere show up at the end of life and take over. And that has really created a lot of wounds uh, for, the, for the lovers, you know, who are not recognized by the family of origin. How can we really stop that kind of problem from happening over and over again? Because it causing, it's causing a lot of trauma uh, to those who have survived and who are still continuing on with their lives after the death. Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that part of it has been, you know, that first thing that we talked about, the heterosexist assumptions. So assuming that the person in the room is just a friend, assuming that they don't have legal rights. Um, there are protections against this uh, from the White House going back several years um, where people can state who they want. They don't have to be biologically related. You don't have to prove that. And yet there are often uh, missteps as to who has standing. So certainly in the U.S., um, making sure that you have healthcare proxy forms. Uh, there's even some places, um, particularly in states where people don't necessarily feel welcome because uh, there are different levels of minority stress experienced by LGBTQ people and different levels of um, fear about discrimination based on, you know, which state you're in uh, that's documented. Um, so there's also hospital visitation forms to say mm -hmm. this person can visit me in all circumstances. I think that early integration of palliative care, early referral to hospice when it's appropriate so that people have time to interact with the teams, so that the team know who's the right person to talk to. I think it's really these sort of emergency situations where somebody's coming in crashing, where we see a lot of the, you know, they're going by the forum, they don't see a legal relationship and they're calling the family of origin that may be very estranged. Mm. Um, I think that, we, that gay marriage has allowed some of this to change, but I've had, um, I, I know the story, um, of somebody in New York City, and New York City is quite liberal, where somebody in a same-sex male relationship, one of the people was hit by a car and was having very um, acute care. And they actually, before they let the person's spouse and marriage was legal, make decisions and visit in the ICU, they made the person go home to New Jersey and provide their marriage license. I can't imagine a circumstance and the team found it very confusing, like, oh, we don't know if this person is standing or not. Even in the situation where somebody was married, people found it confusing. And I can't imagine a circumstance where uh, a heterosexual appearing couple um, would be asked for that. No, that's terrible when things like that happen. It dehumanizes other people, which is really, really bad. And so there is trauma, but there's more protections. And again, the more savvy these groups are and the more people 
LGBTQ people facing serious illness state their wishes. And the palliative care teams are an excellent place to say, who do you want in the room? Who do you want to have to be your decision maker? Right? Yeah. Like we, we can intervene. We can, we can address that. So it looks like we need more drive on people to have healthcare proxy uh, to avoid um, things like that happening. I think that helps to have it written down and signed. And that's one of the other things is that people, uh, child custody issues may be complicated for same sex, uh, for, se- for same sex couples. For, um, and so if you know somebody's facing a terminal cancer, I mean, palliative care teams are an excellent place to start bringing those things up, hospice teams. You know, so there may be a whole array of forms and things that need to be put in place. Yeah. And then the other potential barrier is lack of integration and availability of resources. Uh, has, there, has, there been, um, has that been improved so far in the last couple of years? Are there more resources available now? I think there were. I think COVID uh, set things back. Um, I do think there's more online support groups than there have been, uh, some through the National LGBTQ, LGBTQ Cancer Network. Those are support groups, of course, for primarily patients with cancer, but there is some end-of-life focused work. The forms that we discussed, that we were just mentioning, uh, the child custody, the um, hospital visitation, the healthcare proxy, those things are important. I think discussion with the healthcare team and no judgment about if there is somebody from the family of origin that has sort of traumatized them and they don't want that person there. Uh, those are always, you know, things as healthcare providers are uncomfortable with, but maybe that's something that we need to um, respect and ask about. Hoping that the integration of availability resources gets better. I think that there was a, a backslide for sure. Yeah. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Mengi. Um, we spoke earlier in the break about uh, implicit bias, and I have to come up front here. I mean, religious organizations uh, in the past, maybe even some now, have really not been kind uh, to sexual and gender minorities. And that has hurt a lot of people. It has wounded a lot of people, and I really apologize for that. Yeah, so uh, I was wondering, for you as a chaplain, you know, you have the insider's view of how maybe that trauma can be addressed. Because I'm really worried in the current political environment, at least in the U.S., where, you know, there's a lot of in the name of religion, there's more discrimination and more laws being passed against sexual and gender minorities, particularly trans people. That may create more alienation and more barriers to people reaching out to hospice chaplaincy. Yeah. And so from an insider's view, what do you think would be most effective to bridge that gap? I think um, 
the first step is actually uh, apologizing for those, you know, injustices that religious organizations have caused. But I think the next step is is listening uh, and actually listening to the pain uh, that people have gone through. And until we understand, I think, until we understand somebody's pain and struggles, um, it's really hard uh, to make changes, but I think uh, listening to, to the challenges. And the sad thing for me is there's no religion uh, that preaches hate at least, but the, the, the tenet of every religion is about love, love, empathy, and compassion. Because at the end of the day, we all go through these emotions, especially if we are at the end of life. We need proper care. We need love. We need acceptance. And um, so I'd encourage religious leaders and chaplains out there who are struggling. It is to to just come down and listen, listen to people. I, so, I really, I really appreciate. Sorry, I really appreciate uh, that. I think that some of the sexual and gender minority people that will be taking care of in hospice settings will have experienced trauma, and some of that trauma will keep them will be a source of pain yeah. at the end of life. Yes. And for us to not make that trauma worse and to create a space where we're informed about trauma-informed care and how to approach people so that it's safe to disclose, but then we actually address the trauma and respect our common humanity and try to provide the best quality care. I think those things are very important. I think some of that's gonna fall on the variety of chaplaincies out there to, to really think about their own biases yeah, um, and to do work to be more aware. Yeah. I know that we spoke about a, a book um, from Kimberly Aquaviva called LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care. And I think it's, it's a wonderful book and it really can be a starting point for people to think about their, you know, the messages they got when they were younger or the messages they got intentionally from religion and from society about LGBTQ people um, so that we can start undoing our assumptions and so that we're not only, you know, wearing a rainbow sticker, but we're also able to not take personally the trauma people express and to also, also make them feel better because unloading that trauma might be something that people really need to do before they die. Yeah. I think it is important to create space where people can actually share freely uh, about that trauma. So it's creating that healthy space. I have to also say that I think that people who fight to be their genuine self are some of the strongest, sort of most magical people that we have. Yeah. And so it's really um, have somebody who then on top of it, their bodies betraying them, they're passing away to have somebody like that deal with if we could help with forgiveness yeah. even if it's you know you don't have to tell the person when you're forgiving and i think that would be huge for uh, sections and minority communities and something that would really help at the end of life and i think chaplaincy is the key to that i, I, I think <laughs> if we could help with that that would be very healing I agree. I think uh, chaplains has a strong role to play uh, in bridging some of this gap in uh, 
educating the community, community religious leaders, educating the you know the clinical team, because there's a strong intersection between sexual identity and spirituality. What are your final thoughts? That I think this is an opportunity. I've always thought that the chaplaincy is a, a, a really crucial part of the hospice team, and the disconnect that is sometimes experienced between SGM communities and the individual in front of you um, is particularly tragic. And a lot of it is assumptions, assumptions that this religious person is going to discriminate against me and assumptions that this LGBTQ person is alienated from spirituality. Um, I think that if we could just do better and not make those assumptions and focus on our common humanity while allowing people to be honest about their stories, I think that it could really help people. Yeah. In your research uh, at the, the topic of clinical practice, I think you have good suggestions there that can help clinicians um, practice better. And the first is collect data for all patients at initial encounters and create individualized plans with regard to disclosure or non-disclosure. Uh, that, that's a powerful, right there, that's a powerful advice there. Yeah, and I think it's something that in the U.S. Where there's a, a mandate to start collecting this information. It's just we have to agree upon how to do it. And, you know, I don't know if that rollout is going to be in healthcare systems and then hospices later. Yeah. But I think the sooner that we do it, the sooner we can start to develop, realize where the gaps are, do more research like, like we've been doing to identify these gaps. And then we can build resources and start, you know, really educating people from early in their training um, for when they're working on hospice teams, um, you know, to do better and to look out for these things. And the second recommendation really speaks a lot to chaplaincy. Acknowledge that reconciliation with families of origin may or may not be welcomed. You know, we are quick to, to speak about reconciliation, you know, and we have to really <laughs> acknowledge. And maybe you know, if we do that, it, it has to be a partnership that the patient must actually want this. Yeah, I think always asking patients what they want, but also... Maybe the emphasis should be on forgiveness more than reconciliation. Yeah. And on, um, you know, which I think forgiveness helps with trauma, but other trauma-informed care elements yeah. would be helpful. What are some of the, uh, I don't know, I'm big on rituals. <laughs> are there any forgiveness rituals that you found helpful? So I am just bolstering my... Uh, work with forgiveness and reading about it and trying to learn more about it. I think that part of what I'm learning is that having a safe place to tell your story, even if it's you journaling, um, it's important. I think the idea that like you can forgive, but it doesn't have to be, you can put it out there in the universe, but you don't have to um, go to that person um, and get their buy-in, that it can be separate, then you can make a conscious choice to not forgive, but still address the underlying issue. I think those things have been helpful. I think that I'm in the process of coming up with rituals, um, but it is something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last six months. Yeah. Another important uh, advice here is address the increased risk of mental health problems and unique psychological barriers that exist. 
And uh, wow, that that's loaded there. And sometimes we take that for granted. Yeah, and I think there's something about providing, like that's, I think that recommendation is really just about providing good care and accurate care. Yeah. There are higher rates of smoking. There's higher rates of uh, drug and alcohol use, likely related to uh, minority stress coping and, and social isolation and higher rates. Um, that continues throughout sort of the life course. So it's not like somebody's 70 and necessarily, you know, if, if they're an LGBTQ community, they may be drinking more than a 70 year old who's not. And, you know, that might have implications for good care. It might have implications for uh, which opioids you do. Um, it may not, and more likely it won't. And so the message here isn't, oh, don't give opioids or don't do that, but do an intake. Ask questions you wouldn't normally ask. You know, give patients an opportunity to disclose and describe what their life's like, and are they isolated or aren't they isolated? Do they want to talk to their family of origin or don't they? Are they using other substances or not? Are they do, you know, if somebody's transgender, Often there's a high rate of suicidality among trans people, but also uh, suicide attempts and contemplation. I think that's something that a good hospice care team should know. Um, and so just for accuracy and good care, I think the intake has to be comprehensive. Well said, Dr. Mengi. Thank you very much for joining us on this conversation. And uh, the advice you've given us has been quite immense. And uh, I really appreciate that. That was Dr. Xiao Mengi. Thank you very much for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Juliet, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.